Uh, just as a prelude, we had Professor Toyin Falola uh, with us because he has just published or in the process of publishing a book on secessionist states. And this raises the question of whether to give just a prelude to our discussion, whether Ireland was a secessionist state. Now, as I understand it, this is not the way the Irish look at it, that they achieve their own independence. But on the other hand, they regard Northern Ireland as a secessionist state. So this becomes a rather complex issue. I want to say also we're very happy that Philippa is back with us. And many of you will remember Kevin Kinney, uh, who taught here in the 1990s, five, six, how many years? Five years? Uh, and then he was lured away to Boston College. And he has gone on from Boston College to NYU, and he's in his second month at NYU. So this is a uh, remarkable occasion. Uh, I want to point out that uh, Kevin is uh, famous for the books that he has already written on Irish history, and one in particular, Ireland and the British Empire, uh, which is, was the first uh, <coughs> book in the companion series of the Oxford history of the uh, British Empire. So Kevin, we are very much looking forward to hearing your talk about Ireland. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Roger. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to be uh, back at UT Alston. I started here in 1994, 25 years ago, and uh, joined the British Studies uh, seminar in, in my first week, and I have been a junior fellow ever since. Uh, once a junior fellow, always a junior fellow. Um, I've stayed in touch with um, uh, Roger as a role model and a colleague and uh, a mentor uh, during all of that period. Um, Roger contacted me in the summer and asked me if I would um, uh, give uh, a reappraisal of Eamon de Valera, um, the dominant and most controversial figure in Irish political history in the 20th century. And of course, I, I said yes. I usually say yes when uh, Roger invites me to do things, whether it's uh, a book or a lecture. Uh, before uh, giving a reappraisal, in my own mind, I had to uh, come up with an appraisal. I, in other words, there was a learning curve for me. I had to lear learn quite a lot about de Valera before I could reappraise him. Um, but that's what I'll attempt to do today. Um, Eamon de Valera was the dominant figure in Irish politics for almost half a century from his role in the Easter Rising of 1916 uh, to his last term as Prime Minister, or Taoiseach, uh, which ended in 1959. And after that, he served two seven-year terms in the ceremonial but influential office of President of Ireland. So from 1916 to 1973, uh, de Valera was the dominant figure. The architect of the Irish state, de Valera, is also the most controversial and divisive figure in modern Irish history. It is fair to say that he is currently more disliked than liked in Ireland, and for two main reasons. First, his rejection of the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921 contributed in a significant measure to the civil war that followed. And interestingly, the treaty split 
rather than any conventional left-right spectrum, has defined Irish party politics ever since. It's one of the reasons Ireland isn't polarised today in a conventional manner. Um, it's been a split over a different issue, uh, the, uh, whether to support the treaty or oppose it. <coughs> While de Valera remains a hero to some hardline Republican nationalists, his role in the treaty negotiations and the Civil War earned him an enduring reputation as dogmatic, self-righteous, and anti-democratic. Second, because de Valera was the dominant political figure in Ireland for so long, retiring from the presidency only at the age of 90, when he was almost fully blind, is generally perceived as having overstayed his time, <laughs> and consequently as embodying an Ireland beset by economic and cultural backwardness, of which he seemed to display very little awareness. De Valera believed in economic self-sufficiency rather than development. He did nothing to stop the massive emigration that continued to characterise Ireland throughout the 20th century as much as it had in the 19th. And he clung to a deeply conservative approach on social questions, for example, women's rights. Add to this the forms of censorship he introduced during and after World War II, and de Valera's Ireland emerges as a bleak and narrow-minded place. So the case against de Valera is a strong one. Uh, but so, too, is the case in his favour. When he returned to power in the 1930s, a decade after the treaty split, he drafted a new constitution that made Ireland a republic in all but name. And he carved out a space for Irish neutrality that carried Ireland through the crisis of World War II and has endured to the present. In these two ways in particular, the constitution and neutrality, de Valera created modern Ireland as a sovereign state. So let me begin uh, with a brief account of what previous historians and biographers have made of Eamon de Valera. The official biography, published by Lord Longford and Thomas O'Neill in 1970, was, by the nature of its genre, long on praise and short on critical judgment. Tim Pat Coogan, a well-known Irish newspaper editor and self-trained historian, set out to provide a corrective in his 700-page Eamon de Valera, The Man Who Was Ireland, published in 1995. Coogan had previously published a biography of Michael Collins, de Valera's chief antagonist in the Civil War, whom Coogan regarded as the legitimate architect of the Irish state. If you remember the film Michael Collins, the eponymous hero, played by Liam Neeson, and the craven, duplicitous figure of de Valera, brilliantly, though surely inaccurately, captured by the late Alan Rickman, are largely Coogan's creations. Coogan's biography of de Valera, though comprehensive, is in the end a hatchet job. Coogan declares his intention quote, to steer between the scylla of hagiography and the charybdis of denigration. Practically everything of substance written about him falls into one category or the other, Coogan writes. I have tried to evaluate him neither as a demon nor as a plaster saint, but for what he was, for better or worse, 
the most important leader of the 20th century. But Coogan's biography is not nearly as balanced as he suggests. Was he a Lincoln or a Machiavelli? Coogan asks at the outset. A saint or a charlatan? A man of peace or one who incited young men to hatred and violence? The very terms of this inquiry virtually ensure that the latter set of attributes, Machiavellian, charlatan, apostle of violence, not only get a serious airing in the book, but on balance win out. The figure of de Valera that emerges over the next 700 pages is, as Coogan puts it in his final chapter, etched in light and shade, with the light dimmer and the shade darker than official portraits have hitherto depicted. But once again, this portrait is not as subtle as Coogan suggests. His de Valera is always vain, self-righteous, petulant, dogmatic, and devious, and always angling for power. Coogan finds de Valera's handling of the treaty negotiations, which determined the course of Irish history for the next century, irresponsible and born out of a reckless pride. As a result of de Valera's actions, he concludes, Ireland's course was set in bitterness and small horizons. He concludes that on the great challenges which confronted him during his years in office, including partition, the economy, and emigration, de Valera did little that was useful and much that was harmful. Coogan's biography ends as it begins with a series of rhetorical questions. What then was de Valera, a hero or a fraud? a patriot and a statesman, or a ward-healing politician, a scholar or an obscurantist, a charlatan or a seer. And again, merely to pose the matter uh, in this way is virtually to ensure the outcome. He had elements of all these things in him, Coogan declares, but as ever, he is most interested in exposing the negative qualities. Reviewing Coogan's book in The Independent, Professor Roy Foster of Oxford University paid a backhanded tribute to de Valera's political gifts, but also skewered him for his weaknesses. Repeatedly, Foster writes, de Valera converted practical defeat into rhetorical victory. The rising, quarrels with Irish-American leaders, the treaty split, the civil war, the entry into the Dáil, that's the Irish parliament. The same tactic would gloss over the distancing of Ulster, the failure to revive spoken Irish, economic stagnation, and the hemorrhage of emigration. And, Foster adds, a virtue was made of his personal commitment to moronic artistic censorship and sectarian constitutional law. This is why, as I said, de Valera is not very popular <laughs> in Ireland. Um, but Foster also acknowledges what he calls de Valera's uh, political brilliance, his personal inadequacy inadequacy, Foster writes, was transmuted into political charisma. Private narrow-mindedness, self-delusion, even jealousy, were eclipsed in the public sphere by a legendary political personality that was, Foster rather cryptically concludes, somewhere between Savonarola and Kenyatta. <laughs> I have no idea, idea what that means. <laughs> The, mo the most recent biography by Professor Ronan Fanning of University College Dublin offers the most subtle and balanced and hence the most persuasive account of de Valera's career. At 300 pages, it is also mercifully shorter than Coogan's. <laughs> Recognizing de Valera as the most significant figure in the political history of modern Ireland, 
as well as the most controversial, Fanning seeks to define the magnitude of his political achievement. Like Coogan, Fanning is harshly critical of de Valera's intransigence over the treaty negotiations and his culpability in the Civil War. But he lends much greater weight than Coogan to de Valera's political and diplomatic contributions, especially in the critical decades of the 1930s and 1940s. Okay, so on the basis of that uh, balance sheet, in my lecture today, uh, I want to interweave an assessment of de Valera's accomplishments into a political biography. I want to tell you a lot about his political life and the sequence that it unfolded. And I want to touch on the main themes, the four main themes I have mentioned so far. Um, de Valera's strengths and weaknesses as a political leader. Secondly, his role in the treaty split and the Civil War. Uh, thirdly, his crafting of a new constitution that paved the way for a full-fledged independent republic. And finally, the question of neutrality, uh, which he saw as the key to national sovereignty. Eamon de Valera was born in New York City in 1882, the only child of an Irish immigrant named Catherine Call and a Spanish sculptor named Juan Vivian de Valera. Catherine Cole was born in County Limerick in 1856, emigrated to Brooklyn, the next parish over, in 1879. And there, like so many Irish women of her generation, she entered uh, domestic service. Vivian de Valera, born in the Basque country in 1853, was the son of an army officer. The family moved from Spain to Cuba, and he re relocated to New York in the 1870s in hopes of advancing his career as a sculptor. According to de Valera's account, his parents were married in New Jersey in 1881, though no documentary evidence of this marriage has survived. His political opponents occasionally raised the specter of illegitimacy, but in general, de Valera used the exotic surname to cultivate an aura of being above the fray in Irish politics. Known early on as the Spaniard, he was sometimes referred to as the Longfellow because of his height, six, six feet one uh, inches, and eventually he was known universally as Dev by his friends and enemies alike. A scholarship student at the Christian Brothers School um, in Limerick and then at Blackrock College, um, the elite school just outside Dublin, De Valera excelled at mathematics went on to take his BA in that subject at the Royal University in 1904 and secured a full-time appointment as the head of the mathematics department at the teacher training college um, in Kerry's Fort Black Rock in 1906. Mm -hmm. Up to this point, de Valera had shown no interest in the Irish language, but with a Gaelic revival emerging as a central component of cultural nationalism, he enrolled in Irish classes. He fell in love not only with the language, but with his teacher, Sinead Flanagan, and they were married in 1910. It was at this point that de Valera changed his given name, Edward, to Eamon. Like many of his generation, de Valera was radicalized by the home rule, home rule crisis that broke out in 1912. Two paramilitary forces, the Ulster Volunteer Force in the north and the Irish Volunteers in the south, stood ready to do battle. 
De Valera joined the Irish Volunteers at their inaugural meeting in Dublin in 1913, and his diligent attendance at weekly drill meetings and his interest in more advanced military exercises won him promotion to captain of his own company. With the Lord's veto over the Commons reduced in 1911 to a three-year moratorium, the Home Rule Bill was finally passed in September 1914. Uh, this being Irish history, it immediately went wrong uh, because war had just broken out in Europe and Home Rule was put on uh, hold for the duration of the conflict. John Redmond, the leader of the dominant moderate nationalist uh, forces in Ireland, sensing a chance to demonstrate the compatibility of Home Rule with imperial loyalty and unity, recommended that the Irish enlist and fight. And eventually 210,000 Irish people served in the British Army. 35,000 died during that conflict, including Redmond's brother Willie. But the result was a split within the Irish volunteers. The majority sided with Redmond, but about 7,500 men broke away, among them Eamon de Valera, and this extremist group played a central role in the lead-up to the Eastern 1916 Rising. De Valera played a minor part in the Rising, commanding an isolated outpost at a place called Boland's Mill on the outskirts of the city. But the events of Easter week made his reputation and laid the foundation for his political career. Like other leaders of the Rising, he was sentenced to death by a military court. By May, by May 12, 1916, um, within a couple of weeks of the, of the outbreak of the Rising, General John Maxwell had presided over the execution of 15 of the revolutionary leaders. De Valera's wife, Sinead, asked the American consul to intervene on the grounds that he was a US citizen. But uh, de Valera was actually uh, saved by a stroke of luck uh, rather than by diplomacy. Despite a telegram from Asquith calling for a halt to the shootings, Maxwell had proceeded with the execution of James Connolly, uh, the socialist leader, on May 12th. He then asked the, the Crown prosecuting officer, W.E. Wiley, if the next prisoner on the list Eamon de Valera was of any importance. No, said Wiley, he is a schoolmaster who was taken at Boland's Mill. <laughs> so he escaped execution. He spent the next uh, year in prison, for, uh, first in Dublin and then in four English uh, prisons. Um, and it was in prison that he made the transition from soldier to politician, establishing himself as the undisputed leader of the Irish Revolution. He was older than most of his companions, enjoyed military seniority as the sole surviving com uh, commandant of 1916, and he insisted on political prisoner status, um, whichever prison he was in, that was uh, very important. Um, he was elected um, to uh, Parliament on the Sinn Féin ticket, not taking his seat obviously, but elected uh, uh, while in prison. He returned as a popular hero in 1917 and was elected uh, as president of both the, uh, the Sinn Féin party, the party of Irish republicanism, and the Irish volunteers. De Valera consolidated his leadership by leading a successful campaign against conscription. 
during which he skillfully secured the support of the Irish hierarchy. The bishop's proclamation negotiated with de Valera that the Irish people had the right to resist conscription by every means consonant with God's law was a critical step towards legitimacy for Sinn Féin as a political party. And faced with this opposition, uh, the British government backed down on extending conscription to Ireland. But de Valera and 72 Sinn Féin leaders were arrested in May 1918 on trumped up allegations of plotting with German agents. And de Valera went back to jail, this time Lincoln Jail uh, in England. While in jail, he was uh, returned unopposed to his seat. Um, and um, Ireland's own parliament, Dáil Éireann, uh, met for its inaugural session. De Valera escaped from Lincoln Jail in February 1919, um, initially considered going straight to the United States, where he felt he could best advance Ireland's case for self-determination by bringing Irish-American pressure to bear on President Woodrow Wilson. He was persuaded to return to Dublin um, and was elected president of Dáil Éireann, the self-declared uh, Irish Parliament in 1919. He still had his eye primarily on America, however, and in June 1919, he left for the United States, uh, where he spent the next uh, 18 months, the critical period in the Irish Revolution, but de Valera was here and felt that this was the best place to be. As president of Dáil Éireann, the Irish Parliament, he was hailed by Irish Americans with the informal title President of Ireland, a misconception he made no effort to correct. <laughs> de Valera eventually grew impatient with Irish American efforts to lobby Wilson and concentrated his energies on raising funds to support the self-declared Irish Republic. And this is one area where the question of secessionism comes in, because in de Valera's opinion, Ireland did, Ireland did not need to be granted the right of self-determination by any council of international powers. It already possessed that right. It had exercised the right in the insurrection of 1916 and again in the election of 1918, creating Dáil Éireann. Irish Americans, he concluded, should stop devoting their time and money to opposing the Versailles Treaty to seeking a right to self-determination and should concentrate instead on directly helping Ireland in its war of independence against the British. And to secure control over American funds, de Valera decided in the summer of 1920 to bypass the existing nationalist societies on this side of the Atlantic and to set up his own organization. Uh, during his time in the United States, he issued up to $5 million in bond certificates whereby Americans could support uh, the war in Ireland. De Valero returned to Ireland on December 23rd, 1920. Uh, the date is significant because that same day, Parliament enacted the Government of Ireland Bill, partitioning the island into two unequal parts. Six northeastern counties constituting Northern Ireland, which remained part of the United Kingdom, and the remaining 26 counties whose status would soon be up for negotiation. When a truce came into effect in July 1921, de Valera met Lo uh, Lloyd George four times in Downing Street, um, but he rejected any offer of dominion status with safeguards for British 
defence interests. The two leaders continued to correspond until September when de Valera accepted an invitation for an Irish delegation to attend a conference in London to determine the nature of Ireland's association with the Empire. The conference began on October 11th. De Valera refused to join the delegation, sending a team uh, led by Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins instead. Now, given how the negotiations turned out, his refusal to participate in the conference has been the source of endless criticism and recrimination ever since. De Valera claimed subsequently that he remained at home to avoid compromising the Republic, to evade any trickery by Lloyd George, who was known for his trickery, as De Valera knew, to ensure that any final decision would be taken in Dublin rather than London. This was De Valera's retroactive uh, rationale. But based on his previous meetings with Lloyd George, he must have known how inexperienced and disadvantaged the Irish team would be compared with their seasoned British counterparts, who included Churchill and Lloyd George, operating on home field, uh, if you like. And in retrospect, it seems clear that he ought to have explained clearly to the Irish delegates that in his view, they did not have full plenipotentiary power to agree on a treaty. In de Valera's view, all of that would have to come back to Dublin before any decision was made. Um, de Valera's authority in Ireland had been so unquestioned since 1916 that apparently nobody saw a need to offer these explanations or to address them up front. So there's a confusion at the, the heart of things. De Valera did not anticipate that the Irish delegates would bond as a team during their constant journeys back and forth to London by sea and rail. He did not anticipate that they would be worn down by the British negotiators, which they were. Above all, he did not anticipate that they could possibly sign an agreement without his approval, uh, which they did on December 6th, and which they regarded as their right to do. Michael Collins remarked pragmatically and presciently that the treaty, while it did not grant full independence, gave Ireland the freedom to achieve freedom. That was Collins's phrase, the freedom to achieve freedom. De Valera, however, rejected the agreement out of hand. Instead, he proposed his own version, uh, the so-called document number two. Uh, now, if what I'm about to say is a little confusing, um, it's because it's a little confusing. <laughs> no, no, nobody has ever really been able to get to the heart of, uh, fully to the heart of document number two, as distinct from the treaty. But, but here are the issues at stake. The treaty provided for an Irish free state that would be a self-governing dominion within the British Empire. The king would be the head of the Irish state. His representative in Ireland would be a governor general and the members of the Irish Parliament would swear an oath of allegiance, not only to the constitution of the Irish Free State, but also to the King. De Valera insisted that the only source of authority over Ireland was the Irish people, and that he could not, or Ireland could not, accept that arrangement. Under document number two, Ireland would cooperate with other Commonwealth powers on matters of common concern. 
representatives to, uh, to Dáil Éireann would swear an oath only to the constitution of the Irish Free State, while recognizing the British monarch as the head of an association, the Commonwealth, to which Ireland voluntarily belonged, rather than as the head of the Irish state. Okay, all of that sounded a bit, a bit clearer <laughs> than I expected it would, maybe too clear. Um, the issue at stake, in any case, was sovereignty. It was not, um, it was the sovereignty of the 26 counties. It was not, as is often assumed, the partition of Ireland. Partition was a fait accompli, it had been an act of the previous year. The question was, would Southern Ireland constitute an independent republic, as the men of 1916 had declared, or would it retain an allegiance to the British Empire, such that the members of its government would be required to swear an oath of loyalty to the crown, with the king remaining as Ireland's head of state? Uh, now, is that the kind of issue you fight a civil war over? Uh, the answer has to be yes, because <laughs> the civil war came out of precisely that issue. Um, de Valera expected to win majority support for his alternative formulation, but the Doyle approved the treaty rather than document number two by 64 votes to 57. De Valera resigned as president of Doyle Aaron, stood for re-election as president of that body, but was again defeated on an even narrower margin, 60 votes to 58. And then here is the key to the whole thing. Unable to accept this outcome, de Valera took the profoundly undemocratic step of withdrawing from the Doyle with his supporters. In doing so, he did not single-handedly cause the Irish Civil War Extremist elements in the IRA were determined to oppose the treaty by force. But de Valera did determine uh, the form and the scale of the conflict that followed. De Valera's cardinal sin, as Fanning puts it, was his rejection of the treaty and his consequent culpability for the Civil War. That charge is incontrovertible. If de Valera had been prepared to swallow his pride and with it, his legitimate complaint that the plenipotentiaries had broken their word not to sign the treaty without first referring it back to Dublin, the treaty split might have been contained. This is Fanning. Fanning concludes that he opposed the treaty not because it was a compromise, but because it was not his compromise. Not, that is, a compromise that he had, he had authorised in advance of its uh, conclusion. Now, de Valera, as I said, never controlled the extremists, uh, but his pronouncements as the crisis escalated enhanced the chances of war. On St. Patrick's Day 1922, for example, he declared that if the treaty were accepted, the IRA, quote, would have to wade through Irish blood, through the blood of the soldiers of the Irish government, and through perhaps the blood of some of the members of the government in order to get Irish freedom. The following month, anti-treaty forces occupied the four courts in Dublin, the main judicial centre, and the storming of that building uh, by Irish uh, Free, State, Free State Army forces ignited the civil war, which lasted for 
most of the next year. In 1923, um, de Valera's Sinn Féin candidates uh, won 44 of the 151 Dáil seats contested, but they refused to take their seats on the grounds that the Irish Free State was invalid. De Valera was arrested by Free State troops, uh, sent back to jail for a year. Uh, this was the low point of his political career, but he was already planning his slow return to power. Um, one of the, uh, brief digression, and then I'll get into the remainder of the lecture, one of the um, more peculiar and interesting essays I was asked to write was um, there's a volume on Abraham Lincoln uh, called The Global Lincoln, uh, which looks at images of Lincoln in countries around the world. Um, and they, I was uh, invited to see if I'd like to, to write one on uh, Ireland, uh, Abraham Lincoln in Irish uh, political discourse. Um, and my response was that's, that's either a very good idea or a very bad idea, right? Because nothing has ever been written on that. So either nothing can be written or it's an opportunity. And it turned out to be an opportunity. Uh, what I found, we can maybe get into this in the Q&A, but what I found was that all parties to the Irish question, the hardline nationalists, the moderate nationalists, the Ulster Unionists, uh, invoked Abraham Lincoln with sufficient frequency. You know, it's not a mantra, but with sufficient frequency to make things interesting. But they invoked a different Lincoln. Um, so what was at stake here is De, De Valera had a bust of Lincoln on his desk and he had framed copies of the Declaration of Independence in his office. Um, Lloyd George was very interested in Lincoln. But when, when either man talked about Lincoln, they were really talking about themselves. Right? The Lincoln they were remembering was a part of themselves. So Lloyd George loved the Lincoln who had fought a war in, in, uh, over, over the forces of reaction and prevailed the Civil War, World War I. Um, de Valera uh, loved the Lincoln who had prevented uh, uh, secession, uh, which he equated with partition. And in de Valera's view of the matter, um, as Roger alluded to, um, whereas Lloyd George would see the, uh, de Valera and his kind as secessionists from the empire, uh, de Valera's position was, we, we have nothing to secede from. The union, the union was imposed, not chosen. It's illegitimate. We have nothing to secede from. Secession is the wrong uh, term. Uh, nor by the same, uh, by a similar logic, uh, do the people of Northern Ireland have any right to secede from a, an inviolable Irish nation, which is, uh, can be identified with the territory of Ireland and ha has existed from time immemorial. Um, so uh, in the Irish political idiom, uh, secession becomes partition, and there are arguments made against it. Okay, in 1926, um, de Valera resigned as president of Sinn Féin and announced the formation of a new political party. That, par that party is Fianna Fáil, which is one of the two main political parties in Ireland ever since, <coughs> with the objectives of securing the political independence of a united Ireland as a republic, restoring the Irish language, and um, implementing a social system of equal opportunity, land redistribution, and economic self-sufficiency. 
um, of those who came close to, to enacting the first and the last, in other words, political in independence in a form something like a republic and some degree of economic self-sufficiency. By this time, uh, the Free State Government had uh, passed a law providing that candidates for the Irish Parliament must henceforth declare their intention before nomination to take the prescribed declaration of allegiance if they were elected. Right, so uh, up to this point, uh, uh, De Valera and Sinn Féin have been running in elections but with no intention of taking their seats. Now under the law, if they're going to run for office, they have to, to uh, take their seat. To take their seat, they have to um, take the oath of allegiance. Um, De Valera advised Fianna Fáil's national executive that they must now choose between entering the Dáil or simply forsaking political action. And he devised a self-righteous compromise, issuing a press release explaining that the required declaration was not really an oath, uh, but simply an empty political formula carrying no obligation of loyalty to the English crown. Uh, why he could not have seen the matter that way in January 1922, on the eve of the Civil War, remained unexplained. But within five years of the 1927 compromise that I've just mentioned, which is ten, within ten years of the Civil War, uh, Fianna Fáil entered the Irish Parliament as the minority but mainstream party of the Republican opposition. So Fianna Fáil and de Valera are back in uh, business, and in 1932, um, they win the election, de Valera be becomes uh, Prime Minister or Taoiseach and for good measure takes the position of Minister for External Affairs, uh, bo both uh, positions. And his goal is clear. He wants to remove the remaining impediments to Irish independence and on that basis to carve out a position for Ireland as a neutral state in a world beset by huge ideological divisions. He introduced legislation to abolish the oath uh, straight away, insisting that Ireland was acting constitutionally, invoking the Statute of Westminster, passed in December 1931, which provided that no law of the United Kingdom should extend to any of the dominions without their consent. So he just uh, uh, revoked the consent. The British did not resist. Uh, in 1935, de Valera began working on a new constitution for Ireland. He took advantage of the British abdication crisis to implement its central features. Ireland's new constitution, endorsed by the Irish people in a referendum on July 1st, declared that Ireland is a sovereign, independent, democratic state and affirmed the Irish nation's inalienable, indefeasible and sovereign right to choose its own form of government. Now, as the title of the country, de Valera chose the name um, ERA, E-I-R-E, or Ireland, uh, rather than the Republic of Ireland, thereby retaining a vague relationship with the Commonwealth. So Ireland by 1937 is a republic in all but name, uh, but not in name. Uh, he feared partly that Britain might retaliate by depriving Irish-born citizens in Britain of their rights 
or by closing the all-important safety valve of emigration. So he was careful in what he was doing. Uh, he also claimed subsequently that the name Republic should be used not for the 26 counties alone, but only when the 32 counties um, came back together. Article 44 of the Constitution, um, conferring a special position on the Catholic Church, is among the most controversial aspects. He drafted this article himself. Uh, he did not reveal its wording until he shared the text of the full document with his cabinet uh, the day before it went unchanged for printing. Um, article 44 has been roundly criticized for favoring the Catholic Church, uh, but you know, as a historian, you, you would also have to see it in its context as a compromise. Um, given the power of the Catholic Church in Irish society, the hierarchy had wanted exclusive, uh, not merely special, recognition. So the, the, the dominant church gets special recognition, not exclusive recognition. De Valera took pains to ensure that the article made explicit, explicit references to the rights of Protestants and Jews. Now, Satisfied that his new constitution had reconciled sovereignty with majority rule, a formula he had failed to achieve in 1922, de Valera moved to repudiate the IRA. Uh, his logic was that now that the Irish people had established a state in accordance with their own wishes, any attempt to overthrow that state was treason. And so very harsh anti-IRA laws are introduced at that point. De Valera's second great accomplishment in the 1930s was to lay the grounds for Irish neutrality. And under the uh, Treaty um, of 1922, the sole remaining uh, restriction on Irish sovereignty was a series of ports in Ireland um, that uh, remained under the defense annex of the treaty. In other words, uh, uh, British access to, to those ports uh, was guaranteed. Um, de Valera could not dismantle that restriction uh, unilaterally. Um, negotiation was needed. He entered into negotiations with, with Neville Chamberlain's government, and in April 1938, it was agreed that all defence facilities retained by the British would be handed over to the Irish government. Uh, this is 1938. Obviously, nobody could foretell what was going to happen. Uh, two years later. In 1938, even as the ports were being formally transferred, uh, the Irish and British intelligence services agreed on close cooperation on counter-espionage and other security matters. De Valera had long believed and publicly stated that an independent Ireland would never threaten Britain. On the contrary, Irish independence would benefit both countries. Provided that Britain respected Irish sovereignty, Ireland would have a vested interest in its neighbour remaining strong, and Britain would benefit from Ireland's refusal to cooperate with enemy powers. In de Valera's mind, therefore, neutrality always entailed mutual cooperation with Britain and a commitment to prevent Germany using Irish territory in the event of war. And actually, you can trace that strain in his thought back 20 years before World War II. When the IRA, as the self-styled government of the Irish Republic, launched a bombing campaign in England in 1939, de Valera reinforced the Treason Act of 1937 with the new Offences Against the State Act. And in 1940, aware that IRA overtures to Hitler's Germany 
threatened to give Britain a pretext to infringe on Irish neutrality, de Valera enacted draconian emergency powers legislation under which IRA prisoners were interned without trial. Among those who were tried, some were executed by military tribunal, others were allowed uh, to die on hunger strike, and heavy censorship was then enforced throughout the emergency. Now, de Valera manoeuvred Ireland for the most part expertly through the challenges of World War II. An outward dis display of absolute neutrality and independence was essential to preserve Ireland's sovereignty. But at the same time, aware that a German victory would destroy that sovereignty, Ireland furnished considerable assistance to Britain in secret, including permission for overflights of Irish territory, transmission of coast watching and meteorological reports, and shared intelligence. Cen censorship pr prevented the public from knowing the extent of this cooperation, and de Valera concealed much of it even from his own, from his own cabinet. Now, Chamber Chamberlain in 1940 and Churchill in 1941 made overtures purporting to offer a united Ireland in return for the abandonment of neutrality and the use of the treaty ports. But de Valera, refusing to compromise Irish independence, rejected these proposals out of hand. Nor, of course, was he naive enough to assume that Chamberlain or Churchill had either the intention or the ability to follow through on these wartime overtures. De Valera's pursuit of neutrality significantly enhanced his position as a statesman, but he rather spoiled the effect on May 2nd, 1945, with his mulish insistence that strict neutrality required him to visit the German envoy to pay his condolences on the occasion of Hitler's death. Uh, characteristically, um, it's true. it's true, a characteristically pedantic uh, gesture that infuriated the British and even more so the Americans and which Fanning describes as grotesquely ill-judged. Uh, this incident aside, uh, de Valera's policy on neutrality was notably successful. He emerged victorious from an exchange of radio broadcasts with Churchill two weeks later when the British Prime Minister, congratulating himself for his self-restraint at not having reoccupied the treaty ports, made several sneering references to de Valera and his policies. De Valera, in a dignified response, regarded as one of his finest speeches, calmly reiterated that neutrality was the sine qua non of Irish independence. Okay, to wrap up. Um, by 1945, Eamon de Valera had accomplished his primary objectives, a new constitution, the emergence of Ireland as a republic in all but name, and a form of neutrality that allowed the Irish state to survive the only significant threat to its sovereignty that it has yet faced, the crisis of World War II. On other major issues, however, partition, emigration, and the economy, he had few effective ideas or practices. As Professor Joseph Lee once put it, de Valera's qualities would have made him a leader beyond compare in the pre-industrial world. It was in one sense his misfortune that his career should coincide with an age of accelerated economic change whose causes and consequences largely baffled him. De Valera went on to serve three more uh, terms as Taoiseach, followed by two terms in the ceremonial office of president. He had no choice in 1972, given the nature of his position as president, but to publicly approve of Ireland's entry 
into the European economic community. He saw it as inevitable, though in private he worried about its implications for Irish sovereignty, always his main concern. Without de Valera, Ireland would not have secured its sovereignty as early as it did, and it might not have retained it during World War II. It is perhaps a fitting testament to his achievement that the Irish electorate regarded this sovereignty as sufficiently secure by 1972 that they voted overwhelmingly to dilute it by joining Europe. It is primarily on his accomplishments and failures through the end of World War II that de Valera must be judged. He may have been authoritarian, pedantic, and self-righteous, but these same qualities were the key to the unshakable self-confidence that defined his political leadership. If I wish to know what the Irish want, he once famously declared, I look into my own heart. <coughs> Professor Foster rightly points out that this claim entailed consigning large numbers of people to the category of un-Irish. <laughs> Not only a million northern Protestants, but also those people in the rest of Ireland who disagreed with de Valera on politics, culture, or anything else. Yet, if de Valera's self-confidence was his greatest weakness, contributing to the calamity of the Civil War, it was obviously also his greatest strength, allowing him to create a new Irish nation-state. On one side of the coin was fussiness, dogmatism, but on the other was a style of leadership so skilled and self-assured that it made de Valera seem like Ireland's only natural head of state, not only to himself, but to most Irish people. In this respect, there is perhaps at least a partial comparison with General de Gaulle. The two men had very different personalities, one extroverted and volatile, the other introverted and reserved. What they had in common was unshakable self-confidence in matters of state. They met in 1969 in the twilight of their careers when President de Valera hosted the former French president in Dublin. Each of them, for better and for worse, saw himself and his country as one and the same. Thank you.